You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Come to your son's word, inspired by your spirit, uh, that we may know your heart and your your mind, that we may uh, draw near to you, that we may grow. Uh, You say long for the pure milk of the word, that by it we may grow respect to our salvation. And so I just pray this will be a time of growth, encouragement, strength for your church. I pray uh, that we would be sharpened. I pray that the Spirit would, would move in such a way that Jesus, uh, it, it, you're just, your voice is speaking to each of us in what we need to hear um, in whatever circumstances we're going through. And I know that that is a work that is supernatural and I have no supernatural ability. So I ask that your Spirit would move in your church, uh, would move uh, through your word, and that you would be exalted and you would be honored and glorified in your church, Lord Jesus. Uh, we pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thanks. You guys have a seat. A couple months ago, uh, we, we did, my wife and I, we got the Fitbit thing going on so we can see how unfit we are, right? So we're like, oh, I only walked 13 steps all day long. Isn't that great? Uh, but one of the things that's kind of cool about these, these Fitbits that I've realized is it t- actually t- tells you about your sleep. So I'm learning all about my sleep, right? Um, so, that, you know, I, it's like, oh, it tells me you were asleep for, you know, 47 seconds last night. And, um, but, it's, you know, apparently there's different types of sleep. And so it says there's, a, there's light sleep, right, which promotes mental health, it says. It's like, you, you know, your mental health is promoted through your light sleep. So I'm thinking I could probably use a lot more of the light sleep piece in my life. Uh, and then there's the deep sleep. And it says, if you, feel extra, if you feel extra refreshed this morning, then you probably spend some time in deep sleep. And I'm thinking, I never wake up, feel extra refreshed. Um, so, and then there is REM sleep, right? Where apparently, uh, it's, this is good for your memory and for your mood. And this is where you have the most vivid dreams, Right? So your dreams are more vivid and it's good for your mood. So I'm thinking, I don't even know if I ever, because I never wake up refreshed or happy. <laughs> so I'm thinking, all right, and my, you know, my memory is gone. I can't even remember like half my kids sometimes. Like, what's your name? It begins with an S. <laughs> right? So I figure I don't sleep ever. Um, and, and, but I'm not the only one. Because we're going to come to a passage today where the king is having some problems with his REM sleep, right? And he is, he is struggling because he's in a bad mood and he's had a very vivid dream, right? And if you've read ahead, you know all about that. And, and if I was going to entitle the summary of his dream that this king had in REM sleep is, it's the end of the world as we know it and I feel fine. If you were born after 1987, you have no clue. In fact, if you guys want a star in the booth, we'll play that after the sermon for you guys. Uh, that's, the, that's the idea of, this, of, the, of the dream, right? That's what it's about. And the king actually doesn't feel fine, but Daniel does. So we're going to see why today as we look at Daniel chapter 2. And again, I, I want to encourage you, if you haven't got one of the uh, little bookmarks in the back of the room, tells you what we're going to be at every week ahead of time, grab one and read it because this is a long passage today, 49 verses. 
And if I spent just two minutes on every verse, we'd be here for an hour and 40 minutes, and I'm not going to do that. So if you can get ahead and read and just kind of know it this morning on the way to church, just I got my app out, the little Bible app, and it reads it for you, kind of dramatic. It's like Daniel and, you know, the Nebuchadnezzar, and we just played that real quick in the car just one more time. It's just a way to get ready uh, so, we, so you guys can be ready for the text. But we're going to do is we're going to work through the narrative, and then we're going to talk about it is the end of the world as we know it, and how can we feel fine? Um, all right, so last week we began this book. We called it Kingdoms Collide because what we see is the kingdom of God is in opposition uh, to the kingdom of this world. And we saw these boys who were thrown right into the middle of just, of just chaos. They're teenagers. They're probably high school freshmen and they're ripped away from their family and they're taken to this new place where they're thrown into a, a three-year internship where everything is gonna be changed and their names are changed, and their house has changed, and their, their locations changed, and they're given new education and new language, and that was all fine, but when it came to the new diet that went against what, what God had said in his, in his law, they weren't willing to change. So that what they did is they went on the Daniel diet, and for three years, after three years, they were 10 times better than everybody else, because God was in control. And that's really the theme we talked about in the book. As the kingdoms of the world collide, we see that God is ultimately sovereign over them all, and we're going to see that constantly through this book, all right? So we're gonna work through chapter two today. There's six kind of movements, six chapters, and we're gonna work quickly through them, and then we'll come back at the end and talk about how we can know that it's the end of the world as we know it and still feel fine, because Daniel did, all right? So let's look at the first chapter. The first chapter is entitled, Nebuchadnezzar Freaks Out, all right? Chapter two, verse one through three. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Circle that word, it's plural, notice it. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king of his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar is struggling with his REM sleep and he has plural dreams. Now this is not some girly dude that's kind of like, oh, I'm scared. This is Freddy Krueger in my dream. He is a, a warrior. He is a conqueror. He is probably one of the most powerful kings who ever lived. But there's something about this dream that he keeps having. It's a repeated thing. It's not just multiple dreams. It's the same dream over and over and over. We don't know how long, but enough to freak him out. You have the same dream twice, you're like, eh. If he's had it for weeks, maybe months, and he, can't, he doesn't even want to go to sleep anymore. That's how terrified he is. There's just something significant. So what does he do? Okay, he calls in the experts. Who are you going to call? Chaldeans, right? That's, those, these guys, that were, their job was to, you know, read dreams. They're kind of the fortune tellers, the magicians, the wise men of the day. So he brings in the wise men and the Chaldeans and says, tell me my dream. So we go to scene two. Scene one, Nebuchadnezzar freaks out. Scene two, the Chaldeans freak out. Verse four and five. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, and this is where the book, by the way, switches from Hebrew to Aramaic, which is very unique in the Old Testament. Most of the Old Testament is written in actually Hebrew. This section is written in Aramaic through not quite the end, but close to the end, right? So it's in Aramaic, and it says, oh, king, live forever. That's a way of, of being respectful. They say, tell your servants a dream, and we will show the interpretation, Right? And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses be laid in ruins. 
Well, see, Nebuchadnezzar's a smart cookie. He knows that anybody can come in and say, oh, here's what your dream means, and just make something up. And there's no way to validate it. There's no way it's testable. And these guys had done all these kind of things before. So he says, the only way I can know that you really know is for you to tell me that you actually know my dream without me telling you what the dream is. That's kind of a hard deal, right? But that's where he's able. He says, and he tells them, if you don't do it, you die. And in verse six, he says, if you do do it, you get great reward, all right? And that's kind of a big extreme, right? And he says it again in verse eight, because the guys are like, well, uh, yeah, he's joking, right? He's joking. And they said a second time, verse seven, let the king tell his servants a dream and we will show its interpretation. And the king answered and said, I know with certainty you're trying to gain time now. Y'all are stalling. Because you see the word for me is firm. If you do not make the, make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words to me before till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Well, now... I mean, they're, they're at a loss, right? And the Chaldeans said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of a magician or enchanter or a Chaldean. Nobody's ever asked anybody to do this. this is not, they didn't teach us this in college. Enchanter college, they never said you have to tell us other things. They don't tell you how to actually discover the dream. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king. Notice the phrase, except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. The only person who could do this is gods, right? Plural, because the Babylonians had multiple gods. So this is, this is a supernatural thinking. We're not supernatural. We cannot do it. And the king freaks out. And the king was angry, he's furious. He commanded all the wise men be destroyed. Talk about hard boss, right? I mean, how'd you like to work for this guy? All right, everybody, just wipe them all out. Let's start over, new college. So the decree went out and the wise men were sought to be killed and they sought Daniel. Daniel was a wise man. He wasn't one of these top guys. He's still in training. This is early on in his, in his internship. And he, these are his professors. These guys that are about to get killed are all his profs, right? And so they lump them all in and they're gonna kill everybody. And we move to scene three. Oh, I guess you guys, Daniel doesn't freak out, all right? Daniel remains calm. Verse, you can imagine, knock on the door. Daniel, you and the buddies, you and the boys in there? We're here on a special mission from the king. You're going to die. That's Arioch, the, the commander. He's kind of the Navy SEAL of Nebuchadnezzar, goes out. And Daniel replied, I love this, with prudence. He replies with prudence. He, he responds with, with discretion. Right? He's not spazzing out. He's not, run, everybody run. And remember, he's 15. He's 16 years old at this time. So with discretion and, and with, with just a coolness, he responds. He says, what, what's the big deal? Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation. He's so level-headed. It's it, it's. It's amazing. And so then he gathers his boys, verse 17. He went to his house. He makes the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's companions. There's that community piece we talked about last week. And he told them to seek the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that they might not die. And you can imagine, he brings the boys in. It's late at night. Guys, 
some coffee. Thanks, Daniel. Okay, here's the deal. The king has had a dream, all right? And, and, and we need to know what it means. Oh, great, Daniel, that's kind of your deal, right? That's where your gifts are. Yes, but we don't know what the dream is. So first we gotta do is we gotta figure out, God's gotta show us what's the dream. Then, and we can't guess, it's gotta be exact, right? Precise, we gotta know exactly what's going on in the king's mind. Then secondly, we have to determine what that dream means, and we kinda gotta do it quick. Because I bought us a little time, but if, if we don't know by like tomorrow morning, then that is your last cup of coffee. So who wants to pray first? <laughs> I mean, and can you imagine that prayer meeting? I, I'm pretty sure Abednego was not like, Father, and I pray for Aunt Sally. She's got a sore toe. That sore toe has been bothering her for months. No one's praying about discounts at Disney or traveling mercies. All right? There is an intense, they pray to the God of heaven. They pray for mercy. God, you have to do something that no one can do. You have to do it now or we are gone. Amen. And it seems like they go to bed. That's the most shocking thing to me because the next verse says the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So it seems as if Daniel goes to sleep and God in this miraculous way in in high def 4K shows him the dream. And you would expect if that was me, your life is now gonna be spared. What's the first thing you do? You wake up and you book it to the palace. Daniel does a quiet time. He's, he stops, and, and, he, and in the next like, kind of four verses, it's just his praise of God. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the time and the seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells within him. And then he thanks him. He says, God of my fathers, thank you. Why? You've given me wisdom. You've given me might. You've made me strong. And you've made known to me what we asked. You answered our prayer. Now, immediately, specifically. Why? You've made known to us the matter of the king. I, he, it's, it's the end of the world as he knows it. And Daniel feels fine. Right? I mean, it's just, it's a shocking thing for this young dude. Right? And so what does he do? He calls up old Arioch. Um, and who the king had appointed to destroy the wise men. He says, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon, which is grace, by the way, on, on his part, because these guys hated Daniel. They're gonna fight Daniel the rest of the book, and these guys are, are really wicked pagan sorcerers, and Daniel has mercy on him. He could be like, hey, save us four. Wipe them out. But he says, don't kill anybody else. I will show the king. And so Arioch, the little scoundrel, runs into the king and says, I have found among the exiles of Judah. No, he didn't. Daniel came to him, but he's trying to kind of get the credit. He runs in real quick. I got somebody, king. I got an expert. I found somebody. And so Daniel comes in, whose name was Belshazzar. And, and remember, this is the most powerful man, maybe of all time, up to this point, right? He, his kingdom is bigger than Solomon, David, all these guys. This is a powerful man. And Daniel comes in as this 15-year-old boy. And here's the king who five minutes earlier wanted to kill him and says, can you interpret my dream? And what does he say? I love this. No. 
first word, no, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show the kingdom mystery. What are you doing here, buddy? But I love verse 28. But, but, the Hebrew text is the very first word. There's these great contrasting terms in the book of Daniel. Chapter one had one when it said uh, that, but Daniel and his friends would not defile themselves. Here's another one. But there is a God, King, in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions in your head are these. The the thoughts that that uh, things are going to be after. He's saying God has revealed to you, King, what is going to happen in the future. It's the end of the world as we know it. All right? That's what he said. That's what God has done. That's what he is doing, right? And as for me, it wasn't me, it was God. This mystery has been real to me, not because of any wisdom I have, but so that you may know the thoughts of your mind, right? that's, That's where he points. And so that's chapter three. Chapter four is the dream. Why does it keep skipping up there? For some reason, it keeps going like three slides. So the chapter, next chapter is the dream. And, and here's the dream. We're not going to read it all. You guys can read it. This is what he saw right here. Okay? And I mean, not exact. That's not like a picture he drew for us, but that's kind of a good representation. He saw a statue, very scary. It's had, got a, a head of gold, a chest of silver, a, a, a kind of belly and thigh of bronze, legs of iron, and then the feet were like mixed. And then he saw a small rock cut, not from human hands, that came and it hits the feet of the thing and it crumbles into dust and then the little rock grows into a mountain that fills the earth. That's his dream, right? And so he tells him, this is your dream, all right? This is what you saw. Not this is what I think you saw, is this is what you saw. And the key is that, that rock, the stone that was cut out, not by human hand, it struck the image and it pulverized it. And then at the end, the stone became a great mountain and filled the earth. That's kind of the thrust of the dream, all right? And so he closes and says, this was the dream. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's jaw is like, yes, it was. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You want to know what it means? Here's what it means. And so here's the next portion, all right? The meaning. Right, the meaning of the dream. All right, and again, on the on the little uh, map here or the little thing, you have basically uh, the the significance of each portion of the statue. He's saying this is what's going to happen in the future, specifically for my people, my people Israel. There's a kingdom of Babylon. He says you are the king of Babylon. You are the head of the gold. Great king, mighty king, no one's going to be mightier than you. There's going to come one after you. This is the kingdom of Media and Persia. That's why there's two arms. One's Media, one's Persia. That's going to rule and reign for a while. We're going to see them in the next couple chapters. Then there's going to be a third kingdom. It's going to be very strong and conquer the whole earth. This is the Greek, the Greek kingdom, Alexander the Great. He said after that, there's going to be a very strong kingdom of iron. That's the kingdom of Rome. Right? And, and then at the end of days, there's going to be a kingdom where there's going to be 10 kings that are kind of strong but weak, mixed together. There's going to be an antichrist. I'm kind of going ahead real fast. We'll get to these things in chapter 7 and 8, so I'm leaving the interpretation for there more. But that, that's very futuristic. That's Revelation 17. That's, that's uh, all these crazy things going on, apocalyptic. He said, that, that's what's going to happen. This is the end of the world. This is kind of 
everything from zero to, to the end of the world all in one statue. And in the end, there's gonna be a stone and it's gonna start out real small, but it's gonna crush this final kingdom and it's gonna pulverize it into dust and then this kingdom is gonna grow into a huge mountain and fill the earth. And that, you know, we have the New Testament, so we know what's the stone? The stone is Christ. He is the cornerstone. He is the stone that was rejected, but he becomes the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And we know that his kingdom will reign forever and ever and ever. And that's where this whole thing is going. But the whole idea here is, this is what's going to happen, king. This is the future. This is what you saw, right? And so the final scene, man, a lot of these things, we gotta figure this out for second service, fellas, because this is ridiculous. Um, Ugh. Are you guys hitting the button up there? All right. The final scene, it's just like skipping slides. <laughs> just turn it off. I'll just do this myself. All right, the promotion. All right, he promotes Daniel. Daniel is obviously honored. He is offered the next spot in the king, second spot in the kingdom, um, and he promotes his buddies with him. That's the rest of the book. Right, that's that's big picture. All right, now I know that's forty nine verses, super fast. What in the world does that have to do with two thousand seventeen? A bunch of mostly non Hebrew folks sitting in a room in Savannah, Georgia. Right? How do how, how do we respond? It's great to know that God knows what the future is. We hope He does because He's God. It's great to know. Remember, Daniel is writing to a group of people who are in exile in the place where it feels like God is not in control, but he really is in control. So there's a comfort piece that's behind this, right? It's the epitome of kingdoms collide, by the way, that the kingdoms of the world and the kingdoms of God, and God's going to pulverize them into dust so that they're not even seen anymore and they're gone, right? That, that's the epitome of it. But here also, you have a group of people who are gonna be reading this book in exile saying, look how well Daniel thrived in Babylon. If Daniel can thrive in Babylon, then we can thrive in Babylon. So here, here's, let me give you, there's a, I could go with a lot of different directions here, and we're not going to do the prophecy piece today, so if you brought your coloring pencils and your dragon charts, you're going to have to put them away, all right? But let me g- give you three things that kind of stood out to me from this big narrative, all right? That it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. First one's this. It's stop spazzing. Christians are spazzes. Oh my goodness, who's the president? Oh my goodness, what am I gonna do? Oh my goodness, this government's so bad. Oh my goodness, the family's so bad. The attack of this, the attack of that. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. We're so worried, we're so anxious, we're so, oh, timid. Why? Right? Why are we so worried? Why are we so spastic? Daniel is a 15-year-old boy whose life is in the balance. He is a freshman in high school. And they come to his door to kill him, and he is cool as the other side of the piddle. Yeah, guys, what's so big a deal? Why is he able to do that? Why does it say he responds with prudence and discretion? You know why? It's the phrase is in here twice. Because he believes that there is a God in heaven. What does he tell King Nebuchadnezzar? There is a God in heaven. What does he tell his boys when they're going to go pray? We're going to pray to the God of heaven. 
And, and here's the key for him. His confidence in the fact that there's a living God seated on the throne does not move him to apathy. Right? It's not like, well, you know, this is some kind of Christian fatalism that we see. You know, que sera, sera. Life goes on. God is in control. All we can do is pray. That's not him. He, because he believes, he is moved to action. And not just action, it's wise action. He knows how to respond. He's been listening to some Kenny Rogers. You got to know when to hold him. You got to know when to fold him. And no one to walk away, and got no one to run. You never count, no. I mean, he's able to respond the way he should. Why? Because he has faith. And when, I, when I'm learning, y'all, and, and with this, this is probably the biggest lesson maybe for me, but and you, it may hit you differently, is that faith is not believing and doing nothing. It is not, it's not just sitting back and... Well, I guess God has to do something. I mean, Daniel, what does he do? He believes that God is, is alive, he's in heaven, so he goes right to the man who wants to kill him. That's, that's guts. That's a guy who says, God has me here for a reason, he is alive, he cares, so I'm going to put myself out there and, I'm gonna, uh, and see what he's gonna do. That is why Daniel is so greatly used by God. Right? And we over-spiritualize things and, oh, we got to just, there's no hope and we're so bad and all these things. Is God alive in heaven or not, church? That, that's, the, that's the one question you got to ask. And if he is, then he has got you here for a reason and there's no more woe is me Christian fatalism. Right? We trust God. We don't rely on our own self. I'm not saying we go and, you know, kind of pull yourselves up. But we, well, there's movement, we don't like to move. We don't like to move until God shows us all the details and how everything's gonna work out. And, I, and, then, and then once we get all the details, oh, okay, it's gonna work out fine on the end. I'll go. And God says, no, you get on the road and we'll take care of the details. That's what Daniel does. I, I, that's why he has great faith and that's why some of us don't because we won't move until God shows us how it's gonna all turn out. Do you realize that without faith is it, impo- it is impossible to please God? Right? I mean, do you, do you realize that God delights when his people step out and trust him? I, it's, it's, it's delighting to him. We just sang it a little bit ago. Frail children of dust, feeble and frail, and thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer. Yeah, you're frail, but can you trust God? Can you, tr- can you step out? Can you, can you spend some time saying, God, I, I know you want me to do X? Instead of this like, well, I want a new job. God, give me a new job. Need a new job. Hate my job. Hate my job. Hate my job. But we're lazy. We're not doing a good job at the work job we have now. We're not even making calls. We're not pursuing anything. God, just drop a new job in. Somebody email me and tell me they want to hire me for $5,000 an hour. We don't do anything. God, I want you to change my spouse. I want a great marriage where marriage could be great, but you just, you, you just want to just change them. Don't change me. 
So instead of you being more patient and you speaking to your spouse kindly and you going out of your way and serving despite what they are and you releasing and forgiving, just change them. Make my marriage great. I'm not gonna do anything. I'm gonna be the same person I am forever. In fact, probably more grumpy, but make my marriage great. And there's no faith that, it's just, well, God, you're gonna do this in this vacuum and I'm not gonna take any steps towards you. Help us get out of debt, Lord. We got all this debt and we just need you to come through so we're playing the Powerball, right? We'll be one in 300 million odds. Yeah, it'll be us. Instead of, hey, maybe I need to stop drinking that $7 latte every day. I need that though. That's just, that's life-giving to me. Just get some Sanka, right? You trying to get out of debt? You drink Sanka. When you're out of debt, you drink $7 lattes. That's the way the world works, y'all. This is, this is a, that's free for you millennials. I'm just giving it to you. All right, uh, but we just oh you know maybe we'll maybe we'll start giving off the top and trusting that God because we're honoring Him with the first that He's going to come through in the back end. But there's we we all oh, just kind of pray and do nothing. No, we're like Nehemiah. We pray and we go into the King. We're like we're like Daniel. We pray and we move towards Arioch and we trust that God's going to come through. And if He needs to steer us, we do it. But we need to stop being spazzes. I can't believe the government is so bad. Who's the one that puts the kings in control? What did Daniel say? You put kings into control. Who was, why was Nebuchadnezzar there? Because of God. Why is Cyrus and Darius and all these other guys coming later? Medes and the Persians. God. Why is Alexander the Great going to conquer the known world? God. Why is Rome going to be there? God. Why is future Antichrist and Roman kingdom and Middle East and all these ten federations going to happen? Because God is over them all. So why are you concerned with who your governor is? Your job is just to follow the law, be good citizens, stop whining and Facebooking, stop spazzing. The Constitution will burn. So will the Declaration of Independence. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So I just don't want to be a bunch of Christian spazzes who are worried about everything. And I certainly don't want myself to be. If God says he feeds and cares for the daggum sparrows, does he care for his church? Is, are, you, are you gonna eat? Are you gonna, are you gonna be clothed? I promise you, we will not let you come to church naked. I promise. <laughs> and we won't, let you, we won't let you starve either. And we won't let you go homeless. And neither will he. Right? And so, let's... Let's stop being spazzes. And let's start believing what we say we believe. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. Do we? Is he really alive? Is he really in control? If he is, then we don't need to be spazzes. How can we see the end of the world as we know it and we feel fine? Because God is in control of the end of the world and his mountain will rule forever. Right? That's the first thing. Hopefully the slide will work on the next one. Yes. <laughs> Second thing I get out of this passage is that God, it's just a reminder that God is for God. That God's glory is his, is his biggest goal. Right, that he, he magnifies himself. It's the story of the Bible. It's the story of this chapter. Yes, the Bible is about how God rescues man and redeems him and, and, and brings him back to himself, but it's all ultimately for his glory. And you can read through the Old and the New Testament, y'all, and you just constantly see time and time again that God does things for his glory. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie by green pastures. He restores my soul. He does all the things. Why? It ends up saying, for his name's sake. 
But we have a culture that tells you that it is about you and that you are varsity. You're not JV, you are varsity. And, and when we come to the scriptures, we see, no, we're not varsity, we're like pre-K. God is varsity. Does God love us? Oh my goodness, does he love us. Is he passionate about his church? Oh my goodness. Does he care for us? Does he meet our needs? Is he thinking about us? Yes, but he does it for his name's sake. He does it not because we are awesome, but because he is awesome. And I can, I, can, I can unpack for the next two hours verses. I can talk Isaiah 43, verse 7, that says he created you out of the dust for his glory. Habakkuk 2, 14, that says that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the, the oceans, the waters and the sea. In Matthew 5, he says, let your light shine before men. Why? So that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify God. Jesus says, pray in his name and he will answer. Why? Because in this, the Father is glorified. In Romans 9, he talks about how he raised up Pharaoh, the enemy of the people of God, so that he could show his glory. That God does these things. First Peter says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which you were slandered, they, they may observe your good deeds and glorify God. Philippians says that God is working in us for his good pleasure. Peter again says that he has given you gifts and abilities so that you may use them to give glory to God. It's, it's all about him. In this chapter, how many times is it really shown that God is putting his glory on display? Daniel talks about it. Of course we assume he's going to. What does he say? Thank you, God, you showed this to me. Thank you, God, you revealed this to me. And then when Nebuchadnezzar says, how did you do this? It wasn't me. Right? But not just Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar at the end says, your God is the God of gods. Now, he's not converted yet. He's got to go and be an animal for about seven years. We'll see that in chapter four. But he's getting there. But, but Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world who, who bows down to idols, is saying, your God is the real deal. Even the Chaldeans in the beginning, when he says, you need to tell me the dream and its interpretation, what do they say? No man can do that. Only the gods See, God is showing that he does things that no one else can because it's his glory and he's, he's, that's what he's about. And so just real, here's a practical verse for us, right? What does this look like? Paul says it. Whatever you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, work for God and not for man. So, so this, is, this is the catechism, right? This is, some of you grew up being catechized, if that's a verb. Right? What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's this verse's summary. So, so you, you enjoy a great cup of coffee this morning. You can glorify God and enjoy that because he is the creator of coffee. Not Starbucks coffee, but Perk coffee. But it is, you enjoy, when you enjoy something good, then it's a, it's a way for you to enjoy God is the point. Your marriage, a good relationship, a great book, a great nap, a good jog, walking on the beach. These are gifts from God in a way that you can enjoy him. And then there's other things that you say, okay, now how can I show God off in this? So I'm on this team, and, and I, how am I gonna make God look great? And I'm not talking about cheese, y'all. Let's not be cheesy where your boss says, good job in that report, and all of a sudden you Tebow in the office. I want to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for that report. I'm not talking about that. Okay, that's cheese. 
But I am talking about giving him props. It may be public, like Daniel, King, this is not from me. Or it may be private, like Daniel. God, thank you for revealing this to me. But in the end, our end aim is to bring him glory and not the glorification of the worm. We're the worm. So what we do is not exalt men. If I preach a good sermon once in a while, it's, it's not because of me. And it's not, and again, the other side of this is don't be like, don't be so falsely humble. Well, you know, I didn't do anything. I just, I, it was all God, all God. Okay, no, God gave you an ability and you can thank, thank you for the compliment. Praise God. I, I, I'm glad you were encouraged. I'm glad this was helpful to you. But then in privately, Lord, I know that was from you. And so whatever you're doing, work. And you may be the star on the football team. You might be the water boy. And so how can you exalt and make Christ look great being the best water boy, being the best quarterback. Maybe it's your attitude, maybe it's how you encourage the starters because you're not a starter. It's not that you have to be the star to, to, to make Jesus look great, but you do have to make that your goal. Whatever you do, enjoy the gifts of God, enjoy him in that, right? That, that's Daniel, he's pointing back to God. He's using his gifts, God has gifted him. He doesn't deny it. He's not ashamed. Oh, I hate that God. No, he uses his gifts. And then, this is God. And he's going to do this constantly for his 80 years. It's going to be fun to watch. All right? It's going to be fun to watch. And in the end, here's, here's just another thing real quick. I love the end of the book. This is the last verse of the book. The, the angel tells Daniel, he says, go your way, rest. And you should, he's, go your way till the end. You're going to die in Babylon, Daniel. And you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. I just love that kind of encouragement. You've been faithful in Babylon for 60 years. But you know what? You're gonna stand in your place. I've got a, this is Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't tell you. Daniel, you got a place. You're gonna stand forever. Why? Because you pointed people to me. You made it your aim. Man, that's good stuff, y'all. That is good stuff. And it's amazing when we have the, the heart of Jesus, by the way, who in high priestly prayer, he tells that he's praying to the disciples, with, with the disciples, he says, Father, glorify your name. What is that? What happens? The Father speaks in the prayer meeting. Never had that happen. He says, I, will glor- I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The heart of Jesus is to glorify the Father. And what does he do? He glorifies Jesus. There's, there's a... There's a way that God has when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, what does he do? He exalts us, even though that wasn't our goal. Daniel's goal is not to become the second in command. He humbles himself under God, and God raises him up. It's a great picture of, of what we're called to do, right? It's the end of the world as we know it. Daniel's feeling fine because he's pointing to the one who will forever reign. And here's the last point. Last lesson. There you go. Skipped it. Go back one. We got bugs this morning, y'all. It's the demons. It's the demon. It's probably a PC program. Um, get busy. You got what I, I'm moving there. Some of you are a little slow. Third, third thing is this, is get busy. It, the people get all excited and, and fight about prophecy and they're all trying to figure it out. Man, what's gonna happen and when? The point of prophecy is not... 
to figure out all the times and when's it gonna happen and, and what year and charts and when we got arrows going this way and dragons spitting fire and meteors and I mean, that's fun. But the point of prophecy is for you to realize you got a task. And Jesus, when the disciples in Acts 1 think, it's time, they're up on the mountain, they know the prophecies, kingdom coming, Israel restored, and they ask him, is this the time? And what does he say? That's a wrong question, y'all. It is not for you to know the time or the epics. But what does he say? You will receive power, the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses. He said, you're going to get the power, and now you got a job to do. Your job is to proclaim the kingdom until I come. And then so Peter, later in his life, when writing about prophecy, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed, since the mountain is coming, it's going to fill the earth, what sort of people ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Anxious for it. He says, while you're awaiting, be diligent to be found by him without spot or wrinkle. The point is that Christians don't sit on the mountain singing kumbaya till Jesus comes home. We are doing it. We're busy. We are moving. We are trusting. We are, we are proclaiming the kingdom. We are witnesses. We are loving. We are laughing. We are joyful because we know the mountain is coming. Right? And, and, some of you got some wrinkles. I got major wrinkles. I slept in my, I mean, I'm like, like, like I slept in a suit. That's how wrinkly I am. But some of you have things that if Jesus came back today, you'd be like, oh, I should have talked to my mom. I, 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 haven't, I haven't talked to that cousin in five years. We've had that fight. You need to write the letter. You need to say, to pursue that person and say, I'm sorry. You, you need to be working on this. I mean, man, my mouth is still where it was 10 years ago and I really want God to, but there's wrinkles and stains and, and it's time to get busy. It's time to be, be looking for the return, right? And being his witnesses. That's what he's called us to do because the rock is coming. He came the first time, just like he said he would. He's coming again and this time he's coming as a mountain and he will rule and he will reign and he will be worshipped by all. Kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of the Lord and his Christ, Revelation says. And it's the end of the world as we know it. And we feel fine. Why? Because we're not going to be spastic. We have a God who is alive. We're going to seek his glory and his namesake. And we're going to be ready. Our candles will be trimmed. Our eyes will be up. And one day, if you have put your faith in him, you will stand in your allotted place at the end of days with Daniel. Right? The response to the church is always, even so come, Lord Jesus. It's the end of the world as we know it. You feel fine? All right, let's stand and let's worship. We're not singing that song, by the way, just <laughs> in case you were wondering. Uh, Father, um, it's good to be reminded of just big picture truths that Jesus is king and he will rule and reign. Um, I, there's a lot here, Lord, in this text and, and there's a lot that I wasn't able to cover, but uh, I know your spirit who inspired the word moves in people. I pray for encouragement. I pray for maybe challenge for some. Um, maybe some of us have been the spazzing ones. And we just need to know that you care and you love and you're in control. Um, 
maybe some of us have been seeking our own glory and, and we're, we're too busy glorifying the worm. I, I pray for a humility in your church. I thank you, Lord, that you, the stone that, that was rejected, are with us. That you are not distant like these Babylonian false gods who, who are kind of disinterested in the lives of, its, of, of people, that you are near, that you are with us, that the stone was with us and is today. And you promise that you will be with us forever. We thank you that you are Emmanuel. Um, as we worship you, uh, Lord, just draw us close to you for your namesake. Amen.